Let us turn now to our um, scripture reading today, which comes to us from Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Verse Mark 12, 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second, uh, like it, is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but him, but than he, and to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered well, wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God, for David, humble, for David himself uh, said, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the scribes say, I'm sorry, let me repeat that. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is it? How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in, the, in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and uh, the, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, uh, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the, tre the treasury. And many who were rich put, uh, put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a, uh, which makes a quadrant. Uh, so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that this poor widow has put in more than those than all those who have been given to the who have given to the treasury, for they all put out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. The title of the message this morning is The Depths of Biblical Love. 
the, de- the depths of biblical love, because this passage from beginning to end, from the from the story about the scribes coming to Jesus or, and uh, asking him a question to the story of the widow's mite, it all uh, uh, explains to us or details to us uh, how uh, the, this great secret that we must be controlled and compelled by love as our great drive in life. Uh, love is uh, the, the, the love to God is the greatest uh, dimension or debate, the greatest emotion or the greatest thought uh, that we can have to the Lord. Now this is interesting because the, the scribes come to Jesus and they, this one scribe, and it, that, it points that out. It says in verse 28, then one of the scribes came because Jesus condemns the scribes later on. In, uh, in verse um, uh, 38. Uh, but there were people of the scribes and of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees who were coming to Christ and would be a part, would play a part in the New Testament church. Remember, the scribes were like the intellects or the professional intellects of uh, the Jewish classes. They were the ones that had studied the Torah they're called scribes because they copied the Torah. They were they made up those schools where they recopied copies of the Bible of the different scrolls of the Old Testament, and so in doing that, they were known to be professional professional students. They were the closest that we might have to seminary professors, people that really study the thing out and try to understand. Now, of all those people, Jesus has this warning in verse thirty-eight. Beware of these scribes, much as we might say today, beware of the clergy or beware of seminary graduates, just the opposite of what our intuition might teach us. All people learn all about God in seminary. No. <laughs> it's in our day, most of the people learn how to avoid God in seminary. They learn how to use good words and fancy sounding arguments. But in the end, their hearts are far from the Lord. And that's why they're enamored and attracted to such things as uh, critical race theory uh, or um, uh, uh, transactional Uh, intersectionality. These are very abstract words, though, that... um, but what it comes down to is that instead of loving the Lord in a simple way, people are very caught up in these intellectual approaches to reality, and they'll talk all day about them and then have no time for prayers or for devotion to God or for public worship. And so Jesus warns about the scribes. But of this group, you see, there was one scribe that came forward who did not despise our Lord. He, he was open to the Lord. He treated the Lord like a rabbi. He asked him an honest question, and they listened to him, and he responded to him. And at the end of this, Jesus says, uh, truly, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that was very ironic, because um, despite the fact that he had so much right intellectually, he agreed with Christ intellectually, he was not yet 
devoted to Christ. He was not yet ready to love Christ as they had just talked about. He was uh, at, at some distance from Christ, even though he stood right before Christ. Christ says, Thou, you are not far from the king of God. He stood before the king. He was about as close to the kingdom of God as you could get. But because he didn't understand Jesus quite yet. But the, the odds are, when Jesus taught, when people like this come to Jesus, like Nicodemus, the odds are that these people became believers and that they became a part of the church of Christ and that these stories then were dear to the first century church because they remember uh, this and no doubt this was dear to this scribe himself because he remembered the day when this happened and he must have laughed at himself that when Jesus said you're not far from the kingdom because having received Christ having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ in his work then he was in the kingdom of God but uh, uh, this the great teaching here is the place of love in the Christian life. Uh, there's only one great book uh, that is written upon, about this by Jonathan Edwards uh, that is entitled Charity and Its Fruits. Charity and Its Fruits. And the, the title is off-throwing in a sense because we don't use the word charity in the same sense of love anymore that they did in the 1600s uh, when uh, this was written. Um, but um, uh, charity was, uh, the word charity, kara kairos, kairos uh, was a, a synonym for love. It was one of the words in the Bible, uh, like agape and uh, uh, phileo and um, words like that, arao, that you can use for love. Um, but this, of course, this was an English variant and not a Greek variant uh, for the word. But uh, Edwards in this book, Charity, Charity and Its Fruits, I remember being drawn to this in seminary. I wanted to read something by Edwards. And I thought, what, you know, people, I'd seen where people had said that this was such a powerful book, but um, I didn't really understand it. So I thought, well, I will read it. And uh, as I read it, I began to study it really deeply. And I, I was just blown away by the fact that, that Edwards, based on it's an explication of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the so-called love chapter. But what Edwards does is he shows how uh, even as Paul, the Apostle Paul, under the influence of Christ, wrote that charity or love was the great good in our lives, that without charity, nothing else worked. Without love, uh, our, our lives were sounding gongs and clanging cymbals. They, weren't, they didn't make beautiful music, despite whatever good that we might do. And so Edward studied this out, and he, he, uh, I, had, I had always thought of the 11th chapter in terms of horizontal love, love between people. But Edward shows how this springs from a love for God, that it's the, the vertical love for God that is the powerhouse, and it's out of that vertical love then that the horizontal love comes. And this is, this is the basis of the Shema Israel that Jesus quotes here. In uh, in um, uh, from um, uh, from Deuteronomy six, uh, where he in verse twenty nine, when he's talking to the scribe, he uh, he part of his answer is he refers to the Shema Israel, and it's it's called the Shema 
because the very first word of this phrase, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The very first word is Shema in Hebrew. And so the Hebrews were very economical with the way they would use things or uh, uh, put memory words in their minds. And so they called this first call or this first command uh, the Shema. And so Jesus uses this in answering the the uh, scribe as he comes to him. And he, the scribe comes and he asks him, <clears throat> uh, which is the first commandment of all? Now, um, if this were asked today in our modern context, I think so many, many men would say, well, that's not the point of the gospel. Well, why are you getting distracted by thinking about the commandments? Uh, think about Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. And Jesus is opposite to the commandments. Uh, Jesus is, he might even say at that point, Jesus is love. But uh, love is uh, we should we don't we shouldn't be concerned with all these ob obligations. We should be concerned with Jesus, you know. And they 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 make oppositions out of Jesus and the commandments. Well, here we see that when Jesus was asked that question, he's not embarrassed at all. He he gets the question, "What is the greatest commandment?" And he 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 waxes golden about it, and he shows how close, how close. These two things are love and law. He shows how they are not opponents. They are not antagonists. But they are conjoined or connected by the idea of love. Because the greatest commandment has to do with love. And if we love the Lord our God, then as uh, Paul argues in uh, Romans 11, <clears throat> if we love the Lord our God, then we will do his commandments. These two things are uh, so close together. Why has the modern church grown so allergic to the idea of obligation so that they would separate it from the idea of love? Well, as I say, Jesus is not that. And so when this one scribe comes and he hears them reasoning, he perceives uh, that uh, Jesus answered them well. Then he came with a question that was bothering him. Now this shows that this man was a, a sincere man. He was thinking about the things of the Bible, of the, the books of Moses, the scrolls, the prophets and their prophecies of covenant breaking. He wants to know uh, of the covenant, which is the most obligatory part of the Old Testament covenant. <clears throat> so Jesus answers him, answers him, the first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like unto it. Uh, you shall love the Lord, your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus holds up this big sign with the word love written on it. But you, you must realize right away that you cannot define that word willy-nilly. You can't define that word however you might or however you want. You can't define that word. You can't give it a Hollywood definition because Hollywood has no place for the living God. And as Jesus described it, love starts with the love 
of God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God uh, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So Jesus shows here that this is a, it's an obligation, but it's also a motivation. It's an obligation, but it's a motivation. And he's saying here that the great obligation of mankind is to be motivated to love the living God. Now, this is my question to you. How much are you motivated by your love of God? Or what is your motivation in life? What is your motivation in life? Uh, I'm studying the life of Bobby Fischer recently. He was kind of a hero when I was growing up. Single-handedly, he bested the Soviet Chess Federation. They had whole teams of people. They had held the world championship for about 40 years. They had whole teams of people that studied uh, Fisher's games and then would counsel and, um, and uh, instruct and mentor their champions of that day. And Fisher strolls in, just a simple, even eccentric genius, and bested the whole, um, whole chess world at that time. Part of the reason why was that he was, um, uh, he was uh, obsessed with chess. He had, his sister, he, when he was six years old, his sister had bought a chess set at the local dime store in the Bronx, New York. She brought it home, and she'd quickly tired of it, but her little, her little brother Bobby, who was six years old, he started to study it, and uh, um, he, uh, he very quickly, he, he, he was just working on it his, on his own. He, he very quickly became um, erudite in the moves and that sort of thing, and, and he would show up at these chess clubs brought along, and he'd 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 play very very well, and and uh, uh, so his obsession bore some fruits. But uh, that obsession is with pieces on a board and moving and things like that, and that can bring us that can bring us some fame uh, here in in uh, in this life. But our Lord says that we should love Him with a kind of obsession. That, uh, that that should be the core thing that motivates us. What what? So I ask you again, what motivates you? Now each of us has gifts. God, in his goodness, God has given us gifts. He expects us to follow those gifts and to, um, to devote ourselves in some sense to developing those gifts and developing the world, his creation, through these gifts. So that's a good thing. But at the same time, you cannot compare the things of this earth. Let's say you're a scientist studying bacteria now or viruses uh, having to do with uh, COVID virus. You cannot compare these squiggly little microscopic things with the living God and his beauty and his goodness. They, they play a part in the scheme of life, but they are not life itself. Where is the source of all life? John 1.1 1, 1 tells us that in the beginning was the Lord, was the Word, and the Word created the world and everything that's in it. So how can you compare uh, a, a, an appreciation for little viruses and your, your ability to study them with the great being that made these things, with the great being who is, whose wisdom was imprinted molecularly and uh, chromosomally on these little creatures and little things of this world. If you, if you rightly 
analyze the two, you cannot begin to compare them. God is God, and everything else falls to the wayside next to him. And so, <clears throat> in the Shema, and in the first commandment, um, you shall have no other gods except the Lord. It points to the fact the exclusivity and the wonder and the beauty of the Lord. And then Jesus here, with this question, in God's providence, this scribe asked Jesus this question. And in that question, uh, he, um, he um, describes for us the, the fullness of our disposition as it ought to be toward the Lord. What is our great motivation in this life? If God is your motivation, if God is your first motivation, then you can do anything and you'll be happy. If God is not your first motivation, then nothing that you do will really make you happy. It will, it'll tantalize you for a bit, for a moment, but not for very long. And then you'll find yourself empty and you'll find yourself looking for something else. But if the Lord God is your great motivation, if he is your great love, then your thoughts, your choices in life will be organized around that great central principle and you'll be much happier. You'll be able to love other people. Why should we love other people who are so unlovely in so many ways? Why should we even be interested in them? Why should we spend time with them? Why not just spend time thinking about yourself? Why not just focus on your own life? Well, you can do that if you don't focus on the Lord first. But if you're, draw, if you're drawn to the Lord and if you love the Lord, then you will love the special creation that he's made. When the Lord says that he made man in his own image. And you see somebody that you don't especially like. You'll say, yeah, I don't really like that guy. That, that person is not as nice as I'd like him to be. But he came from the master's pen. Maybe I ought to, maybe I ought to take some time and try to cultivate my relationship with him. Maybe I should try to give him something of myself that it might brighten up his life some. That it, so that he might become more of what God would have him to be. This, but this comes from a, an attitude and a perspective uh, uh, that centers on the love of God. If we don't love the Lord, then why should we do these things? The great problem with politicians today is that they have no love of God. That's why they're so selfish. That's why they're so spineless. That's why they're so contemptible in their controversies and in their schemes. They have no love for God. The great, the great mystery for me is how the average politician can get up every morning and go to work. I, I would become so sick of myself. I would see the, I would see the, the, uh, the inglory and the corruption of my ways that would, that would become so significant in my eyes. I cannot understand how Nancy Pelosi. I cannot understand how she gets up in the morning and puts in one more day. When her life is so empty and when her her points are, are so her her points of action, her efforts in life are are so uh, contemptible. You think about the I mentioned in the prayer, only nine percent, only nine percent of this COVID relief bill actually goes to COVID relief. You see, if the politician is really proud of the things that they're going for, then why doesn't the politician mention that? 
You see, he's he's not proud. He's he he's he's happy about it, but he's not proud of it because he knows that the average person in Iowa is not going to be excited about a new subway system in San Francisco. Or why not make all of these bills their own bills, stand alone, and vote them up if they're really popular? If they're really going to make the politician popular, then then the more the merrier, you know. Do all of these bills separately so that every day you can stand before your people and you can say, see, I've done this, see, I've done that. Look at the wonderful Congress and what it's doing. So why do they do it? Why do they lump all this stuff together and not talk about any of it? They, they talk about the 9%. Why do they do that? It's because they know that the general population doesn't want all this garbage. But they also know that the general population is foolish enough that they'll say, oh, it's like zombies. Oh, COVID relief bill. Everybody wants that. Duh. It's utter, utter stupidity. But that's because there is no central uh, uh, love of God that, that motivates these things. And all of our problems would be solved. Our problems ultimately are not going to be solved by this think tank or that think tank. All of our problems are ultimately going to be solved because the love of God increases. The work of Jesus Christ it grows larger. So, <clears throat> um, as I said, Jesus says to him, you, you're not far from the king of God. And I've, I've already mentioned that, the irony of that. Um, uh, Our Lord then refers to this prophecy about himself being the son of God, being the son of David, in further verse 35 and following. This follows off the idea that the scribe had not recognized Jesus as the Lord, and so Jesus gives him a little uh, lesson in Old Testament theology and how the one who was standing before him as the son of David, literally he was, he was in the Davidic line, people knew that, both, both through his mother and his father, through um, uh, Mary and Joseph, uh, he was in the Davidic line so that he was the son of David, but he was David's Lord. And if you go back to Psalm 110, from which this comes, you see how it says, a psalm of David, and then after saying a psalm of David, <clears throat> It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so right away you get the idea of the father saying to the son, but David then indicates that he is the son of, uh, the, the son of uh, God too, in the, in the sense of being the, uh, in the sense that the scripture refers to him. And so, you know, it was a mystery. Uh, how can David be speaking this way about himself and the Lord? Well, it gets back into inter-Trinitarian theology and how God used David to represent the Son of God, even Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was born of David. He needed to be born of man. He needed to be human, truly human, even though he was the Son of God. And so all these things are tied together in an amazing way in Psalm 110. And uh, I love Psalm 110. Uh, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Well, David was a rod of strength, but Jesus was a greater rod of strength. For a thousand years after the coming of Christ, Western Christendom was built up and uh, became known as Christendom because it was tied to Jesus Christ. 
And um, verse 3 in Psalm 110 says, Your people shall become volunteers or willing in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, this is where the Lord swears that he will bring the covenant of grace to fruition, that this, this gospel that focuses on the Son, it will work, and it will bring people to himself. And people will bow down before the Lord. So Jesus goes off on this little excursus in front of the scribes there in the, in the temple. <clears throat> then he warns them about the scribes and how... Uh, how um, they love their roles. And then he closes with the story of the widow's mite. And um, this is where you see the depth. Of, you, see, you see the depth of Jesus' wisdom talking with the scribes and talking about Old Testament theology. He ends, though, with a simple story that tugs at your heart. Does it not tug at your heart? He sees people bringing their money into the temple and dropping their money into the, uh, the big uh, collection uh, vehicle. Uh, that was there in the temple that the Levites would watch over. And Jesus, he, this this very poor woman goes forward, the kind of woman that people would just discount out of, out of hand because the poor woman was dressed poorly. She was obviously alone. She didn't have a great family around her. She was a soul. She was a, a weak woman that came and dropped two little coins uh, into uh, this collection thing. Who, did, who caught Jesus' attention? This poor woman. He says, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put more in than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Her whole livelihood. What would you give to God if you had the chance? Is it not appropriate to give everything that we have? He only asks for a tenth in the scriptures, but he doesn't preclude us from giving more when, it, when our hearts are possessed. And so we have the picture of this poor woman giving out of abandon. She's not so concerned about her own life. She's not concerned about her own food. She's not concerned about her own hobbies. She's consumed by something else, by the love of God. And in the purity of that love, then we see the heart of the gospel. For that is the love that possessed the Father and the Son for us. And that is the love that possesses our hearts toward them. We find out about it. And when the Holy Spirit presses that deeply within our hearts. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that we might never get rid of this picture that Jesus gave us, of this poor woman giving with abandon. Not that we might raise up great edifices or great temples by the money that we collect for the church, but that we might raise up great worship for God when we see the motivation of this poor woman's heart and how as poor as she was, she knew something of the love of God. Oh God, bless us with that love. Motivate us with that love. Fill us up, oh Lord. 
uh, center our lives upon the love of God. That obtaining this great good, this pearl without price, obtaining that, that we might have all other things according to your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.